everybody, welcome to Bob's and Banthas, a podcast about Disneyland, Star Wars, and all the other things that Disney Company owns that we love. On this special episode, we get the opportunity to talk with Disney Imagineer Tom Morris about growing up in Orange County, working at Disneyland, and getting the opportunity to work at WED. We're so excited that we got a chance to sit down with Tom, and we can't wait for you to listen to it. Joining us on the show is an Imagineer and Disney historian whose work was instrumental into the creation of Epcot, has been photographed millions of times over in Disneyland Paris, and is part of some of the most beloved attractions in the parks, including Splash Mountain and Radiator Springs Racers. You've seen him in the Imagineering story on Disney+, and in my humble opinion, he's the most laid-back and coolest dude in that series. And he's also an author and speaker who continually shines the light on the contributions of lesser-known Imagineers throughout the company's history. And we are thrilled to shine a light on him tonight. It's Tom K. Morris. Tom, welcome to Bobsons and Banthas. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be here. I am happy you're here. Aaron and I are psyched to talk with you. And I said to to Aaron before uh, we got on the show... I said, I'm really excited to talk to Tom because... You said it five times. You, you said, kept saying it. I kept saying it. And I also said, because honestly, he's sort of like a hunky Imagineer. You did. You called him the hunky Imagineer. And I was like, what does that mean? And you're like, uh, you know, he's just he's just a hunky Imagineer. And so I like, got I have to agree with you there's now like that this, I've met him in person especially on chat. Especially on uh, Disney, the, you know, the Imagineering story. There's just, you had this like cool air about you when you yeah. were being interviewed. Like you didn't care that you were being interviewed, but you what you were saying, you were just like <laughs> dropping knowledge bombs. And it was yeah. really enjoyable to, to, to hear and, and see your interview. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. I've never been referred to as hunky before. Well, there you go. Uh, You're... No. Well, thank you. Let alone by Scott Storm, which <laughs> is pretty, that, pretty big privilege. That might, it might have been true at one point. Uh, well, listen, you, shining you wear that as a badge of honor at this point. Okay. In fact, you uh, if you, if you want to con- right. start referring to yourself that way, I have no, I have no objection. To I that. think it's a book title, the hunky Imagineer. It, it works. <laughs> So, Tom, there's so much that we want to cover with you tonight. We may not be able to get all of it, but I think it's always great to start at the very beginning. You grew up in Orange County. Uh, I believe you grew up sort of in the 60s and 70s. And so our first question is, like, w- describe what that's like. Describe what it's like growing up in Orange County in the background or the backyard of Disneyland during the very early days of of Disney. What's that like? Well, it's actually kind of a complicated complicated question now because I'm revisiting my memories of growing up in Orange County because what I didn't know at the time as I as I was growing up there was that um, there was kind of a touch point to Epcot and to uh, what Walt was doing um, in his last years that I never knew about. And what um, was that? That had uh, the Irvine Company and the and the um, and the layout of the neighborhood, the very neighborhood that I grew up in, was um, this revolutionary greenbelt community, as it was um, advertised. Um, we moved there in 1967. We had been living actually on the oceanfront. Oh wow! Um, in Newport, yeah. <laughs> And my dad was a high school teacher, but um, very wisely purchased a home on the oceanfront in the early 60s when you anyone, not anyone, but just about anyone on a, on a teacher's salary could um, buy a home like that. And the only thing, you know, the only thing that he had to give up was time because it might take 
30 minutes yeah. to um, commute to work. <laughs> um, <and laughs> worth the commute, we, yeah. if we're being honest. A 30-minute L.A. commute for a beach house sounds all right. Um, so we were lucky. And uh, we kept that home and moved to um, the Bluffs, it was called. And it was kind of, you know, I remember thinking this is innovative. I didn't use those words in my head, but I, it's like, oh, this is a very different kind of a, a community. It's got these green belts. You can walk everywhere um, and not have to drive. And there, were, there was like a lake in the middle of it and all these interesting little trails. And it was very interestingly laid out. Why do you think this appealed to your dad? Did he want to live closer? Or was it something about that neighborhood that was interesting to him? Or had the house appreciated so much that he wanted to sell it? I think that he, um, well, we kept the house on the oceanfront and rented it. Okay, there you go. Very smart move. <laughs> and, it was a, and it was a duplex. So we got good income from that. Yeah. Um, so for a year while we waited for the home in the bluffs to be constructed, we lived in Bay Shores near John Wayne. John Wayne lived uh, like a block and a half. Right I saw him a lot, you know, and, and very, you know, only very briefly talked to him, um, you know, while he was starting up his car. He had a big station wagon. I, I think it was custom because it had a bubble top. And, you know, I just always thought that was interesting that John Wayne drove the station wagon. And how, how old and were you at that time? Seven or eight. Okay. So, and, I mean, was he, a, was he a, a movie god in your eyes at that point? Or is he just a neighbor? Yeah, because a film had just come out. I think the Green Berets or something like that. I mean, you know, his films were coming out like every year or two. And he'd be in line for ice cream, for nickel ice cream at the Save-On drugstore. It's like CVS now. It is like an and, only uh, in L.A. type of thing. It is an only in L.A. During that time, too, when it's accessible and there's not yeah. paparazzi. It's just, yeah, these people live in my neighborhood. No, I, like on Halloween, he'd answer the door. <laughs> exactly. Root beer can, you know, those root beer barrel yeah. candies. Yeah. yeah, he's just a regular guy. Yeah, I'd see him all the time. Uh, but I only talked to him once. One time he was starting up his car and, and I was walking my dog and he said, that's a cute little dog, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Duke. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it was kind of, it's just, a, it was an interesting, it's more interesting in retrospect now, you know, it was kind of, you know, everyday living at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys moved to this bluffs, this sort of master planned, green belt, walkable, uh, suburban neighborhood right. of the future, maybe, quote unquote. Uh, right. And what is that connection was, or how does that feel? And it was also affordable housing. It was the affordable housing district of Newport. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was just kind of amazing. And um but it was one only one part or one satellite of the much larger Newport Center development um, that was designed by partly designed by William Pereira, who is a player in Disney history. Mm. And um, and Ray Watson told me, who was the CEO of Disney for many years, told me that he laid out the neighborhood that I grew up in. Oh, is that right? Wow. <laughs> That he was he was uh, he was the planner uh, along with someone else on on the bluffs and on East Bluff where he lived. He lived up on the high up on the hill. He had an extra large home <laughs> uh, up there. But you know, all of this was unknown, you know, to me at the time. Apparently, Walt walked um, the bluffs and East Bluff um, just as it was getting underway around 1964, 65. I. I found that information somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
And he also visited the Ford Aeronautic plant um, a few years later. That was right down the street from us on Ford Road. Okay. It's no longer there. Um, so that, that was one of the places he visited in anticipation of Epcot. It was one of, you know, like Westinghouse and all of these different places that he visited. That was one of the stops um, on this Epcot tour. And then my best friend who lived across the street from me, his dad, this I did know. He, well, he said his dad works for Walt Disney. And he said that, you know, he was he got pretty close to Walt for a couple of years and would be in Walt's office um, you know, several times in the two year period and he was working on Epcot and, you know, I didn't quite know whether to believe him because even back then there were people who pumped up their, you know, um, their, their folks or their relatives or their friends or whatever. This person is the person who designed all of Disneyland. Um, so, but, uh, you know, I kind of believed him and, and then it turned out to be true because I met him when, <laughs> when his father moved back and he had all sorts of really wonderful stories that, you know, it, you would have to have, right. you know, no one with, um, you know, without inside knowledge would be able to tell those stories. And then, um, strangely enough, uh, some photos have turned up of him and Walt. Oh, wow. The, the, your across the street neighbor or your, yeah. your best friend across the street? Yeah, yeah. So you, so you are living in the prototype of the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, and it, it was inspired by Ebenezer Howard, um, his Greenbelt communities that were built back east um, at the turn of the old century, and what it didn't do, <laughs> uh, which Epcot, uh, you know, wanted to do, and what Ebenezer Howard, I guess, did was the, the an automobile. And a pedestrian would never be on the same plane. Yeah. They would never yeah. be able to get, you know, a person would never be able to get hit or a bicyclist would never be able to get hit by a car. And that's expensive to do. So the Irvine company didn't go quite that far. Um, but but some of the trails were totally separate from the road, but you still had to cross the street yeah. you know, to get to the trail. It wasn't that you know, forward thinking, but yeah. it was pretty good. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You, you live in this neighborhood. You, you, you live next to John Wayne for a little bit. You live in this neighborhood connected to Epcot. Your neighbor, uh, you know, has some relationship with Walt. Uh, we'll talk about a paper here, paper route in a little bit at this age. Are you aware of, of Disney and what you want to do for a living? Or is it just like, this is just kind of life. People have these sort of experiences all the time, or is this already in, I think I like this stuff. I think I want to do something with this stuff. Well, I think I like this stuff, but there was a lot of stuff I liked. Yeah. So I hadn't decided that it would be a career, but, um, but it was definitely in the, in the universe of things that I loved. And, um, <laughs> and strangely, there were other people, you know, neighbors of mine that were important uh, Disney players. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and it turns out there were many, many more that I never even knew about. Yeah. And um, I'm just finding out about now. So, um, it's just, you know, I think I thought at the time that if you were, you know, if you were like a, uh, um, Roy Disney or one of the people running the company, like card Walker, you must live in Los Angeles or Beverly Hills or something like that. Why would you be living in Newport or Orange County? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them lived in Orange County, it turned out. Yeah. <laughs> So is, is Disneyland having an effect on your childhood at this time, or is it just Disneyland adjacent that's having an effect on your childhood? It's starting to have an effect. I think it, you know, it starts to go full throttle around age 12, I would say. 
uh, you know, I'm interested in film and at the time and architecture at the time. Um, what does that interest art. look like? Does that look like reading, doing, uh, practicing, studying? When you say you're interesting, what well, is I wanted that? to be a drummer. Okay, but that never. You kind of look like I, a drummer a little happened. bit. The one thing that like I wanted to do that I, I never even took lessons. I did end up. It's the one thing that I. Um, one thing that I caved in, I guess, because I wanted to play drums, but they said we have too many drummers. So at school, um, we need more trumpets. So I <laughs> that's trumpet. a bummer. Well, listen, my my wife was a trumpet player, so uh, yeah. you're in good company as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Are you drawing when you're growing up? Sketching, writing stuff. I'm start. Well, I, I'm a good writer naturally. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like I could always. That's where I could count on my A's in school. Um, and a fairly decent artist. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not writing for fun though. Right. You know, I'm writing because you have to write homework. Oh, I was also always very interested, or I guess starting around age eight, um, in animation. So I think the jungle book did that Yeah. Yeah. when that came out. Um, I really liked that film and it made me want to see other animated films and it made me want to buy the book, the art of animation. And, um, so then there was a time when I wanted to, to make animated films. Yeah. And, and your dad, your dad was a set designer or he, he worked on sets. Is he that was correct? an art teacher, but he had, um, but he also was, um, in charge of building the sets for the school plays and productions. Yeah. So you have, you have art just influences all around you. Would you have considered yourself an artistic kid though, growing up? I think I was perceptive. I think I noticed things. I noticed um, things about Disneyland. I noticed how it wasn't childish Hmm. uh, at a very young age. I mean, when I was like two or three, yes, I loved Fantasyland and Snow White's Adventures and Peter Pan. And that was my favorite part of Disneyland until I was maybe six or seven. And then I remember when um, at that time, Tom Tom Sawyer Island took over as being my favorite thing at Disneyland. And probably from that, starting around that age of six or seven, I noticed that Disneyland was sophisticated. Right. Notice that it wasn't like we lived near a thing in Newport in Balboa called the Fun Zone. Uh huh. Oh yeah. The Ferris wheel and bumper cars and all that stuff. And uh, or you know, I think we went a couple times to the Los Angeles County Fair, and like, okay, those are carnivals, and Disneyland is something uh, a cut up, you know, several cuts above. Yeah, yeah there's intentionality those. behind it, right? Disneyland, I can still remember the smells of Disneyland, which were all pleasant. You know, the um, the smell of the orange juice on Main Street. And even, you know, they still had orange trees in the park. So I suppose there were orange blossoms. But also fine cigar and pipe smoke. Interesting. And yeah. I, like, I like that smell. It smelled like um, special occasion is what it smelled like. Yeah. You know, your uncle coming over for Thanksgiving. Or, you know, going out to the movies, you know, someplace special is what that um, that tobacco <laughs> aroma smelled like. So I remember smelling that, you know, and just everything smelled good. And then the lights turning on in the trees in the plaza. And just I remember thinking, this is not a place that's just for kids. 
So, so do you think at that point, cause you're saying that, that was about six, six years old. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think they were, yeah, six or seven. Yeah. So it do was, you think uh, it, before pirates and small world, and would you say, I mean, at that point, would you say that you, you started studying Disney? Is that, I mean, is that a fair? No. No. No, I liked it because the National Geographic had come out with that really cool article and it had a map in it. <clears throat> oh, and the haunted house was an obsession. So from, I, I remember being taken up by one of my sisters right after they had finished the outside facade of it. So it was probably like 63 or 64. Yeah. We always went on 4th of July because <laughs> I guess we love Be, crowds. What, because New Year's Eve and Christmas was too busy. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it was probably, you know, summer 63. And I remember my, um, si one of my sisters taking me up to the gate, you know, the front gate of it. And I just wanted to go in. I'm like, I want to, it's a haunted house. Really? Like, and it's beautiful, yeah. you know? So what is a beautiful haunted house like? And when is it open? Uh, not right now, but um, maybe later today, you know, because I don't even know if Marty's sign was out there yet. I remember reading that on another visit, yeah. like, okay, so when is it going to open? But I, um, and P I think people were kind of like, is it open? You know, there were other people standing around. It's like, when is it going to open? It will be open tomorrow. And, uh, so that really intrigued sure. me. Uh, and then the multi-year wait for it to actually open. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Um, so that, you know, I think the tree house was really intriguing. Tom Sawyer Island was really intriguing. So after a visit to Disneyland, I'd probably for a few days be obsessed about those yeah. particular yeah. things, but I wasn't, you know, it wasn't Disney on my mind all the time. Well, let's, um, let's take it from. Uh, you know, you, you have this interesting story about being a paper boy and, right. and uh, the, the interesting characters that were on your paper route and that right. leading you to, uh, going to Walt Disney world for opening day. Uh, and it's, mm -hmm. all of yeah. that is a fascinating story. So could you walk us through that a little <laughs> bit? Because, because for, to say like, well, it's at six years old, I realized that there was something different about Disney and I was intrigued by these things to then go right. to you know, not to, not to bury the lead, but I traveled to Walt Disney world by myself. There, there right. is a journey there and there's a story there. Yeah. So what is that story? And I don't know how I became so determined to go to Walt Disney world, but it, it, I, I think it had something to do with, it was a myth. It was mythic yeah. um, in the way that the haunted mansion had become mythic before it finally opened. Like, is it really going to open? Did someone really, get so scared in there, they had to close it. Um, these were all, you know, before the internet, these were all rumors. I call them playground rumors. Right. Yep. Um, and Disney world, the, you know, Disney world was a playground rumor. Like, are, is that really a thing they're really going to do? No, they're not. They've decided not to do it. Um, and then all, all of a sudden there's a special on TV about it or, you know, um, a thing on the wonderful world of Disney or color, whatever it was. <laughs> And no, it's a real thing. And it's really going to open. And at and, that point you're uh, saying, I'm, I got to see this to believe it. Because Disneyland already seemed like it had, you know, been a, an established thing like Washington, DC. It's just, yeah, been it's just there. always been there, right? It's always been there and it's always been that way. And I'm looking at these, you know, almost comical um, photos and something about that, I think 
had to do with like, so they're going to open up Walt Disney World. I would love, you know, I'll never be able to go to Disneyland on opening day. Um, and this will be the only other D- Disney park that will ever be built. Right. Surely. Yep. <laughs> so I want to see this thing on opening day. And I think I talked about it and no one believed me. I was going to say, what did your parents think about this? Were they like, there's no way we're going to Florida? Well, they, yeah, they couldn't afford to go to Florida. Right. I could, as I say, the only money I had was the money I saved up on my paper route to do this. <laughs> and was that enough yeah. money to get to Florida for a 12 year old? I had, um, it's funny. The, the cost of the flight was exactly the same as today. It's like $312 or something like that on Delta. And, and back then you had to go to a travel agent, you know, and do this in advance and everything. And I just made my dad take me to a, to the travel agent, local travel agent and bought the ticket. And I had reached out, I had sent a letter to Disney world saying, you know, because they had this little brochure. If you sent them a letter and said, Oh, what's Walt Disney world. They sent you this packet back. And the packet included um, another little packet about the two resort hotels and the room rates. And, you know, it was like uh, $21 for the contemporary hotel. Oh my uh, 20, gosh. I can't even imagine. 27, 27 if you want the tower and in high season, you know, add yeah. $3. Or it's like a like weird that. version of home alone where he goes on vacation, like by himself and stays in a hotel instead of being left <laughs> behind. Exactly. Um, and so I sent them a letter saying, okay, I wanted to stay at the contemporary hotel for a night or sure. two. And you're they 12. Why not? <laughs> they said, you know, you're going to have to be with your parents because <laughs> we won't, you know, yeah. rent it to you. And, you know, my parents had no interest in going and it was a school day. My dad would have had to take the day off. They didn't have, you know, that kind of money to just, you know, um, they didn't have a paper route like you did. Yeah, they didn't have a big, you know, $50 a month paper route. I love that this is even a conversation in your house, though. I think 99% of households like, no. No, you're not going. I'm thinking no, about I, going to Florida, I, Dad. May, my parents might have had a strong disagreement about it. Um, and I don't know if, you know, if it was actually ever at risk of, is it really going to happen? But when I was collecting for my paper route one evening, I um, mentioned to this guy on my route who had this um he had the clock of the face of the clock from the disneyland railroad station in his yard as a table of course you know it's right. up as a table what yeah. kind of what kind it's of a, crazy fantasy land did you grow up in tom this is I the know. weirdest story <laughs> i know um and it said Timex on it. <laughs> and I, I asked him, I said, are, you know, did you get that at Disneyland? And he said, yes, I, I work there. I go, you do? He goes, yes, I'm in charge of, um, I, I'm sure I didn't remember what it was, but what he said was he was in charge of lessee relations. Um, you know, all the lessees and corporate sponsors in the park. Okay. And that was Jack Sayers, who actually – ran Disneyland for the first several years when they fired C.D. Wood, the first manager. Um, then Jack Sayers came in for several years. And he was your neighbor on the paper route, on your paper route. Yeah. Okay. He was a neighbor and he was on my paper route. Heck of a paper route. <laughs> and so I said, oh, well, um, 
I asked him something about Disney World opening. And I said, oh, I'm going to Disney World. He goes, you are? <laughs> he goes, yeah, just by myself, though. Yeah. Just as soon as you pay me, I'm going. My, my dad has he goes, to teach class. I said, I'm going by myself. He goes, uh, you know, I can't remember how the conversation went, but he uh, subsequently set up for someone to meet me at the airport and drive me to Disney World and um, I was assigned a VIP hostess. Yeah, we call that a guardian yeah. ad litem is what we call that. <laughs> yeah. And so now I can't back out of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I got to go through with it. So I went through with it. And um, the irony was that uh, my parents wanted, you know, because of the timing and there was like only one Delta flight that went out there. Um a day and you had to go through Atlanta, it would have, I would have had to like be stuck at the airport for an unreasonable amount of time in Atlanta. Well, my uncle just happened to have been reassigned um, his job in Atlanta. He normally lived in Tustin, but for three or four years, he was in Atlanta. So they made arrangements. My, my mom made arrangements with her brother, my uncle to pick me up at the Atlanta airport. And, um, and then I stayed in Atlanta for a couple nights. Oh my gosh. Before getting to Orlando. No, no. After. Oh, after. Okay. Okay. Afterwards. Yeah. Um, if it weren't for that, I would have gotten to stay in the hotels because they said, you know, you can stay here tonight that Disney said, you know, you don't have to go back to the airport. We'll get you a room at the Polynesian Hotel. Oh, did you did you literally just fly in? Atten- you didn't spend the night there. You just attended opening no. and then left. They said I couldn't stay when, when I wrote them the letter. Right. <laughs> Wait, but <laughs> Jack, Jack Sayers too. wasn't pulling strings for yeah. you. Well, he did. Apparently he but did. I didn't yeah. know that until it was too late. So when I got out there, they said, we have a room for you, but how am I going to get a hold of my uncle? It doesn't matter. You just don't, you just say goodbye to that uncle. You don't have that uncle anymore. You, you stay at, you, you live there. That's where you're from. You don't have a family. I've been happy about that. Believe me. But I, it's like, oh, you know, I could only imagine my parents, how upset they would be if I didn't show up at the airport that my uncle is (laughs) supposed to pick me up at. You know, and making phone calls, I guess, wasn't that easy of a thing back then. I don't know. I don't know why it was an issue, or maybe I did. I also felt like I don't want to be trouble. You know, I don't want to make... Well, listen, in your defense, you're 12 years old, Yeah. okay? You're not critically thinking about uh, logistics of travel at this point. 12-year-olds nowadays are like, I'm thinking about crossing the street. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. They, I did wash up at the, I remember they got me a room to wash up and change my clothes, I guess, or I didn't have an extra set of clothes. They probably gave me a shirt. Um, they gave me a pennant. I remember that. I don't know whatever happened to that. Anyway, I washed up at the Polynesian hotel and then they drove me back to the airport. And then around midnight, I think I landed in Atlanta and, um, I was picked up by my uncle. You're like some Hollywood baller, Tom. Yeah, for you sure. Fly, you fly in to attend a theme park across the country for a couple of hours and then fly back to LA. You would have been a huge Instagrammer back then. <laughs> and by the way, I'd never been on a plane before. Wow. And and it hit the worst turbulence over Dallas, over Texas, on the way, um, you know, heading east. And yeah. I was scared yeah. to death. You know, you've probably been on one of those flights 
where it does that. Not and, by myself or at 12. <laughs> yeah, right. And there was no one, there was hardly anyone else on the plane. And it was rain, you know, there was a lightning and, um, you know, lightning and thunderstorm going on over the Midwest or over, you know, like Texas. And I was scared, you know, yeah. I didn't know that a plane couldn't um, come down if it got hit by lightning or, you know, any of that. So I was scared. And finally, you know, we got to Atlanta and I was like kissing the ground <laughs> and then from Atlanta to Orlando, you know, it was a short flight. I don't remember much about it, but someone picked me up. I wish I knew who that was. Yeah. Uh, I do have the name somewhere of the VIP hostess um, who took me around the first half of the day. And the second half was Jack Lindquist's secretary, Joanne Modica, um, took me around. I had lunch at the uh, King Stephens Banquet Hall. Yep. There, there was no one in, hardly anyone in the park. So there was no line for anything except I remember that the Skyway had like a 10 minute line. Um, but Haunted Mansion, I, I'm pretty certain I rode that twice. And she let me take photos in there because there was no one else. We, you know, there was no one else there. The cardinal so sin, I, the cardinal sin of, yeah, uh, of, of attraction. A flash picture in the stretching room and a flash picture, a couple of flash pictures, I think on the ride. And I thought, Ooh, I'm so privileged that I get to do that. And you said no one was, why was no one there? Because I think um, there was a scare that, you know, everyone was going to show up and that there'd be, you know, five oh. hour uh, backup on the I-4. It's the galaxy's, the galaxy's, edge. Edge, it's the galaxy's edge effect. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and <laughs> I wasn't the only one that was concerned. I think the uh, executives were sweating bullets yeah. because they had purposely opened it. I mean, it was purposely open on October 1st, I find out years later, you know, exactly for, for this reason that they didn't want very many people to show up. It was mm totally off season yet when it happened <laughs> they were scared you right know? And, yeah. and it went on and you know it went on until i think thanksgiving when mm -hmm. they it was it wasn't until thanksgiving that they got the big backup on the freeway so what so, was i mean what would you say you know there, there's so many questions that i have about that experience for you first okay. one being why is that not a movie yet Oh, that's a, that's a, a very good question. I know. Uh, Ask your question. My other question is how should I respond to my 12 year old when he asks to fly when across the country this. by himself after he listens to this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but I think, you know, the one that I'm going to start with is like, how did this experience, you know, looking back on this retrospectively, how did this experience affect you uh, for the career that you would eventually have? I mean, did it have an influence or was it just one of these crazy stories that you get to tell on the playground uh, that no one believes you until I, you show them the pennant? Right. I think it's somewhat isolated, although um, Jack Sayers did get me a job with a lessee when I was um, 14 years old, because there were two or three of the lessees in the park that hired at that young age. And um, so it's indirectly related to that. I think that would have happened, though, if the Disney World thing hadn't happened. For our listeners, that's that's a private vendor that's allowed to operate in the park. Yeah, they, you know, they still had um, several of the original lessees whose contracts had not expired. And I think, um, I mean, most of those lessees went out either five years after the park opened or 10 years. But then there were some that Disney didn't want to, I think, operate 
And um, so uh, Sunkist was one. Mm. Hallmark was another. The Balloons. Um, there was one in Adventureland called the Guatemalan Weavers. Mm-hmm. And so there were a few. The portrait artists, I think. Um, but the ones that hired kids were Sunkist and the Balloons. Yeah. And you, and you got the Balloons. I got the balloons. Yeah. So what was, what was that? What was that experience like as a 14 year old? So again, you've, I mean, you've already lived more life than most Most people will point, (laughs) (laughs) but at 14 years old, you gave up that paper route. (laughs) Yeah. That paper Uh, route seemed like gold, man. Yeah. I had the paper route since I was 11. So, you know, when I finally retired, you charged the new person, right? You said, this is a good paper route. Yeah, did you take a commission I'm off, the, need. off the, the, the new, the new paper route? Well, you know who else was on it was Thurl Ravenscroft. Right. right. Who is what the voice of, uh, I mean, he's Tony the tiger he's in Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. the voice of Tony the tiger. Yeah. He's in the haunted mansion. Yeah. But for me, famously, he's a singing bust in the haunted. That's mansion. right. Yeah. So yep. I when I, uh, and usually his wife answered the door. I never saw him. And I saw the, the paper route card just said Ravenscroft. They didn't say Thoreau Ravenscroft. Yeah. It just said Ravenscroft. So I always wondered, like, I wonder if it's that guy who's on that dumb record that I have. That yeah. really <laughs> and then one day, one time when I collected, instead of his wife, it was him. And, it's, and I'm like, he looks like that singing bust. So I asked him, are you the voice of Tony the Tiger? And he said, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, are you one of the singing statues in the Haunted Mansion? And he's like, yes, I am. How did you know? (laughs) And so we chatted a little bit, and then that was that. I think that was the only interface I ever had with him. I qualify this. I say this, Tom, you were regionally blessed, right? (laughs) It's just regionally blessed. Uh, one of my friends, uh, paper route friends had Raquel Welch on his. Okay. okay. All right. Well, so, this is a good time to be in the business <laughs> just by and large. Yeah. yeah. So I was kind of interested in substituting for him, but it never happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you give up this golden paper route to sell balloons on main street. $50 a month. Yeah. $50 56. a month. Again. Hey, listen, it paid your way to get to Orlando and back. Uh, and so right. you're selling balloons on main street and, uh, like, uh, do you feel like you've, you know, you've reached the dream at this point as a, as a 14 year old, is this, I guess the, the question that I have is how is this in 14 year old Tom Morris's mind? Like, is this living the life or is it just a job at a cool place? Yeah, I think it was kind of just a job at a cool place. It was cool that I could go to Disneyland for free. Um, it was cool that, you know, I could walk a little bit backstage. Um, it was a little overwhelming, I would say for the first six months or so, you know, it's not necessarily an easy job and, um, you know, there's a, there's an art to it and a skill to it. Yeah. I was going to ask for some, uh, some balloon pro tips. You have some balloon (laughs) pro tips for us and our listeners. I wouldn't do justice to explain it. It's something you kind of have to do. You know, you have to prevent the strings from getting tangled. You right. Know, to keep the balloons level um, and kind of inter- the ears kind of help them interlock. Oh, a, is that right? Plane. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So they stay on a plane and don't become, they don't, otherwise they want to, they want to 
kind of go up and down and then tangle around each other. But when they're all locked into one kind of plane, they don't, then they don't actually want to tangle. They don't tend to tangle. Now, all of this is, um, you know, thrown out the window when the Santa Ana winds. Come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're just holding on for dear life uh, at that point. You're holding. Yeah, totally. And I was, you know, not a big kid. I was not hunky. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, I was on the smaller side at the time. And so, you know, sometimes it was kind of a challenge that first year uh, to, to keep the balloons under control. And then they teach you how to um, blow them up and, and work the, work the room basically you blow them up you bunch them you bundle them and then you take them out to deliver yeah. to the sellers so that was another that was like the promotion yeah uh and uh so you know i did that for two or three years and you know it was okay um i didn't always feel like i was part of the family because it was you know it was a separate lessee but i did get a main gate pass and were you able to take breaks with the other cast members and that sort of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd use the in between. You know, yep. um, sometimes I would go over to Pirates and and eat at the deck or the pit, whatever it was called back then. Um, and whenever it kind of made sense, um, you know, I would kind of drift backstage somewhere new just to you know take the brief look. I would never like go deep into a behind the scenes while a ride was operating or anything like that. But you know, just kind of wanted to get acquainted with all sure. of the backstage areas and um so that was kind of that how was that Uh, like as a you know if you did that for a couple of years you're talking about into high school like how is that in your social circle you know at that time is that something that other people great it wasn't good you know i had to work weekends yeah um so i'm working weekends i'm working friday nights often or fridays um all the big games are on friday the you know, going out after the game is Friday. And so many Fridays I wasn't available, but like all, almost every Saturday and Sunday I was working yeah. for the first two years and I had to take a bus to get there cause I didn't drive yet. And, um, and worst of all, I had to have short hair, <laughs> which was not anything that was not a thing in the mid seventies, yeah, you did not. If you had short hair, it meant that you were in the Marines or you were in yeah, or the, the CIA school. or something, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so it didn't do so, a lot for your social life. In other words, it didn't. I always had to keep my hair right on the edge. You know, I, I never wanted it to, it to get too short. So, um, so then Disney took over in my senior year of high school. Disney took over the balloon concession because the owner of it passed away. And um, so Disney took over and merged it with outdoor foods, okay, popcorn, ice cream. So um, they only kept four of the original balloon people. And I was one of them. And, um, and my job was to train the outdoor foods people how to sell balloons. And then they had to teach me how to sell popcorn and ice cream. <laughs> and, uh, so what was the harder what job? What do you think was the harder job? Popcorn. Because, yeah. of, you know, you got a searing hot, uh, there was more to do, you know, they, you had to, uh, periodically fill the thing up with the popcorn and make sure you don't burn yourself. And it was more active and there was 
generally usually more of a line, um, except maybe in the middle of the summer. And ice cream was pretty, it was pretty chill. It was, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was easy. Uh, and then in the summer, right when the summer was over, they accepted my transfer application uh, to be a ride operator. So I went oh, okay. to Tomorrowland Attractions and um, started operating a submarine right away oh, and yeah. the Autopia. You, you, now, you have seen a lot of Disney, right? Uh, you've, you've had a lot of jobs and you've seen a lot of guests. My question is to you, why do you think people buy balloons at Disney? It seems like an incredibly inconvenient souvenir. <laughs> it owns you yeah. now. Like it owns you. Like you have to carry this thing around all day long. If you get it at the end of the day, like, why are you taking a balloon out of the park? What do you think? What do you think? Is it just because a lot of people balloons get them at the end have? of the day? Like right, that's, that's a very popular thing. Yeah. And then you got to find a place to keep, if you're traveling, it's a yeah. nightmare. <laughs> it's blown around right. in your car. Like, I don't know. I'm going to ask the balloon yeah. expert. Why then do you it think eventually people... dies. You know, a day later, right. it's on the yeah. ground. <laughs> um, it, it's a spontaneous, you know, impulse. And the prettier the balloons, um, the more demand there is. The more balloons you have on display, the higher the demand is. Oh, the interesting. The colors choice you have, the higher the demand. So there was actually, I did a report on it one time. Hmm. Um and send it. I can't remember who I sent it to. Well, at what point I, did you do a report? Like, how old were you? Oh no, no, much later. Oh no, when I was, uh, I, I think I was. I may have been a vice president or a director. Um, <laughs> That's fantastic. I was watching. I was well. I out of curiosity. Okay, so uh, this is this is another ten minutes of stuff here. Good. But, um, the art of selling balloons was, as I said, keeping them kind of a, as a group, as an umbrella. Uh, and not a big chaotic mass of tangled, you know, balloons. And so um, in the wintertime, the balloons are nice and clear and shiny. In the summertime, they become opaque fairly quickly because of the heat. That's just a chemical reaction. Oh, it's just reacting the to the sunlight? Or yeah, the heat? to the sunlight. Okay. So they turn opaque after about an hour in the summer. And also the black ink on them would rub off when it got to a certain temperature, say like 80 degrees, then that black ink would, would rub on the balloons Smush, and the yeah. balloons would get all, you know, look like the bottom half of a Greyhound bus or something with just, <laughs> you know, black streaks on it and everything. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I was very attuned to noticing, you know, how sales would be compared to how the display was so i've got lots of colors i always wanted to make sure that you know get, make sure you give me a bundle that have green ones because they stopped selling green ones some you know, i mean disney wasn't in charge of it but someone decided at some point that they weren't going to sell green balloons either because the dye was too expensive or there was not enough demand or some combination of the two so for one season there were no green balloons and i thought that had an impact on the sales because even if you didn't buy a green balloon. You needed them there to create kind of the rainbow. Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. Oh, there's so many choices. I can't, you know, make up my mind. Give me, and sometimes people would say one of each. So you'd give them seven balloons because there yeah. were five colors plus a light blue and a light pink. And um, so I noticed all this stuff. And then I noticed when Disney took over the balloons after I left and the other three balloon sellers left, the operation went, the balloon operation 
kind of went in the wastebasket for a few years and they weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't selling, you know, they weren't displaying the balloons properly. Uh-huh. You know, it was like flowers. You can't have wilted flowers. Sure. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're a florist, you don't have all the dead flowers out in front um, or you don't only sell yellow flowers. Um, so it was something I kind of noticed. And every time I go to the park, it, it was kind of seemed like the same, you know. And um, and so I called the uh, called up. I tracked down the manager of when I was selling the balloons, who he, now by now he had his own operation, his own balloon operation. Um and I asked him, you know, what were how how many units did you sell a year? So I got I got it down to units yeah. instead of you know price, and then the same with Disney, and it was shocking. You know, it was like a, a fifth or a quarter, somewhere between a quarter and a fifth of what the original balloon, the lessee balloon, um, sales were doing per year. I think this had to do with just they had lost the art of selling balloons and it somehow maybe wasn't important because it was it was lumped in with um, ice cream sandwiches and now churros and um, ice cream and all the other things that Outdoor Foods now sold. So it probably wasn't as important that they, you know, um, that the sales be that. Up. Yeah. So you wrote a manifesto. Uh, uh, yes. evangelizing the sale of balloons. I think I sent it to Pressler. I think it was either Pressler or Steve wow. Burke or someone. I'm sure he ate that right up. Well, he probably liked the profit side of it. I don't know if he, I don't know if Paul liked balloons. You can, Who doesn't like balloons? Maybe Paul Pressler. Well, I had I to know. go to, um, I had to go to, I had to, it's like you open your mouth, right? So I, um, and I was traveling back and forth to Paris. And so maybe this had to do also with, you know, like in Paris, is worst of all because you know I had all these pictures of these just terrible um, uh, balloon displays, and it was just clear that the tribal knowledge had just simply never been transferred yeah. Yeah. over. Isn't it fascinating? Know yeah. that you go to Disneyland now and you see a balloon vendor on Main Street, and that is an attraction. Like, yes, they're selling balloons, but it's an Instagram spectacle now. It's yeah. some, it's something right. that's beyond yeah. itself. It's an oh, amazing yeah. thing to see. No, it's very bizarre. Um, so I had to train the. Um, the group in Paris, the balloon room in Paris, um, you know, I, the art of, you know, here's in the, in the golden age of balloon sales. It's again, the, it there's like this, there's just this, like, I don't know. It's, is it poetry? I'm not sure what it is. There's the, there's a beauty there that again, this thing that you, that you did as a job at 14, a skill that you learned that then gets replicated decades later in order to, bring back this art that sort of has been lost to the wayside because of, you know, food sales and churro sales and that sort of thing that, that you're at Whatever the position the that you're in, yeah. in Imagineering, basically saying, I couldn't hey, stand looking at it. You yeah, know, it's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. good. you're really good at, and it didn't, you know, you didn't have to be a genius or especially skilled to learn how to do that. It was just, you know, after about two or three weeks, you get the hang of it and you know what to do. And I think the original balloon owner, Nat Lewis, you know, I was reading some articles about him because I've now subscribed to newspapers.com, you know, so you go down that rabbit hole and he's interviewed after he moves his operation to Florida and everything. And, you know, they talk about how he started at Disneyland and how he would, oh, I think um, Jim Corcus interviewed some of the old, 
older balloon boys and they talked about how Nat would be out there all the time, um, you know, kind of nagging them about what, what they had to do. Yeah. 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 And um, so they kind of had a, a coach out there, um, which was something that, you know, I guess didn't happen initially when Disney took over. And um, I don't know, I must not have had, enough to do or I was gonna say, yeah. you, weren't, you weren't busy uh designing or, a castle or, or anything it, in, I, in might wrote, I might have written it on the plane but, um <laughs> i have it so I'm well sure that's and that's why before. balloons are, are are a new attraction at disney we can thank you for your manifesto like for that they might have gone away there was only they only kept four he had to go train paris the balloons might not be a thing if it weren't for there's John a Morris. balloon renaissance now. yeah yeah, yeah. Well, as, i as, remembered that um so when i worked on hong kong i remember i must have mentioned to someone who had influence in that area that make sure you get someone who has, you know, who's experienced selling the balloons to train, you know, you're going to need to, I would suggest you send someone out who's done this, you know, and did you volunteer for that position? (laughs) (laughs) There is a science to it and there's an art to it. And there's, and and there's uh, metrics and data that can be gleaned from it as well. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, and the, but there's mystery in there. Like, do the green balloons really, you know, what effect did the green balloons yeah. really have? Or what effect did the colors that people don't prefer? Because orange was the other one that people didn't prefer. So it was always red, number one, dark blue, number two, yellow, number three. And then the others were kind of split, but, you know, between the orange, the green, and the pink, and the light blue. Um but they all looked, you know, not so good in the summertime yeah. if they had been out too long. Yeah, in sure. fact, the original um, Nat Lewis knew that after two hours, you had to just, you know, whatever you had left over had to be thrown out. Yeah. So they're just, you know, no one's going to want to buy yeah. them. So you just have to keep delivering the new balloons because you're only going to lose three cents, you know. Um, yeah, when it costs, but, I was going to say, when it costs three cents for a balloon, you're selling for eight bucks. I think you're okay. There was a huge, just boxes and boxes. They were called spoils, right? And so they were the balloons that either popped or um, you took back because they had, you know, gone bad. And so there were just boxes of them for the, in case they got audited by the IRS. (laughs) (laughs) Stacks and stacks. And this was in the old area where the old 20,000 leagues walkthrough exhibit used to be. Oh, yeah, right. I finally matched it up last year because like where do you get a plan of the walkthrough of 20,000 leagues so I came across one and the balloon room was about where the uh oh god I have to look at it again the uh water lock I think and the and the room where all the um all the underseas outfits oh right yeah so um so that became later the balloon room and I remember you could look up and you could see the dark blue uh, paint sprayed for the walkthrough yeah from when it was a walkthrough, oh, wow. you know, any other sign of it was long gone by then. So, uh, so Tom, we go paper route to Walt Disney world to a famed balloon seller. Uh, again, <laughs> uh, the, the Jeffrey Katzenberg of, of balloon sales at Disney. Wow. <laughs> um, and, uh, but so that would be Treb Heining. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're probably right. Um, and, and you should find, track him down and bring him in and interview him. Let's, yeah. Listen, I want to have a panel. Yeah. I want to have a balloon panel yeah. with the two of you. Yeah, we have a new balloon podcast called Seven Up. 
seven, seven colors. colors. Oh, like come that. on. Right. Nice. Uh, so, so at some point, at some point you go from, uh, you working on main street to ODF, uh, sorry, outdoor foods. Oh, thank the, you. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, ODF to, uh, to attractions and, you uh, you're at Cal State Fullerton at at some point right? you go to college at Cal State Fullerton right. and yes. uh and and imagineering uh comes comes a calling is it wet at this time still or is it has it switched yes. over to WDI oh it's very very much still wet okay and so so what what is that can you uh can you take us to how you found out about wed and how you know uh, how you applied and uh, and then we'll we'll talk about what your experience at wed and then to be WDI was like at another time. Right. Um, well, I w- was always aware of WED. I certainly knew about that. I mean, my dad told me about WED when he was a ride operator at Disneyland. Mm. And of course, it was mentioned a few times on the TV show if they were doing a behind right. the scenes thing. So I knew about it. And um, of course, there wasn't very much material uh, on it. I did finagle a. Um, a tour of it though when i was maybe 15 i think i asked why am i not Jack surprised yes. i'm not surprised that they gave you a hotel was... they come down <laughs> uh, they say, i should have like has some design ideas by you so while you're at it <laughs> um yeah i think i asked jack sayers and he arranged it because i guess they would give a tour to disneyland people disneyland cast members probably with a reason um, to see it, but they would do that like once every month, maybe, you know, it's funny. I remember certain things about the tour really stand out. And then, but when I add those all up, I, I it's like, that's only about 30 minutes worth of stuff. And I know we were there for like three hours. Yeah. What else did we see? Uh, we walked through the Western river expedition model. Okay. Uh, which was amazing. Yeah. And we saw the Space Mountain Florida model because it was um, still about a year out, I think, from opening. Yeah. Um, and I remember the tour leader mentioned something about some controversy. It sounded like it's gone way over budget mm. sort of a thing. And, and maybe now they won't do it for Disneyland because they were, you know, the buzz was that. Um if it was popular at Walt Disney world, then they would build one for Disneyland. And so I asked, or someone asked, so when is this coming to Disneyland? And then it was kind of like, well, maybe, you know, we don't know if it will cause it's way over budget. And was Western river still on the table? Was it still planned at that point? They said it was, as it turns out, I think it was not, but they mm-hmm. told us that they were trying to figure out what the means of conveyance for it would be, right. would okay. it be a train yeah. or a boat. Then we went out back to the warehouse where the Western River ride model was, and there was a setup of little cafe tables all in a line like Omnimovers, but I don't think they were on a conveyance system. I think it was just laid out as if it was on a conveyance system. And that was, they said, oh, this is for a, a you know, an Omnimover restaurant that we're thinking of for Disney oh, wow. World. And this is before they started working on uh, Epcot Center. And I was like, wow, that, well, I never heard of this before, you know, and it was kind of, you know, it was a really intriguing idea, but then, you know, on the drive back home, you go, well, how is that going to work? Yeah, how are they yeah. going to serve that? It's preset. A, a 45 minute ride or, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they were, the, the tour leader was vague about, you know, 
what its application would be. But I just remember, you know, kind of being impressed that they had all these tables and chairs set up in a, you know, in a ride yeah. layout, basically. Yeah. So that made an impression. And then we went to the Illusioneering Lab with um, Yale Gracie, oh my gosh. where he had this bar set up, his Illusioneering bar. And he had all these little gags set up. He sat on these bar stools. The bar stools went up and down. And um, and then you put a glass on the on the bar and the glass lit up and did like a lightning effect. And then there was a mirror effect uh, across the way. And I think he did the ship in a bottle gag. Uh, I was told he probably did because that's what he would do on that tour, but I don't remember it. That's wild. Uh, it's wild to think that yeah. you were seeing that in the early seventies and you know, that makes its way into the adventurers club and trader Sam's and all, yeah. all those types of things decades later. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. So that of course, you know, um, Wow, that was it really made a big impression. Yeah. And then we went back through the halls and we went in a conference room and they had the, um, what do they call it? The Lost World with the dinosaurs. So this was a new attraction they were considering uh, probably for Magic Kingdom in Florida. Um, and it was, you know, a jungle cruise with basically with oh, um, okay. dinosaurs. Okay. There you go back. And, uh, and, oh, and they had a bumper boat. There was some kind of a bumper boat ride and they didn't say where it was for. And did, did that lost I, world, I mean, did that make its way over into the world of energy? Is that, is that sort of where sort that ends of, up? Sort of, but this was really like on, on rafts or expedition okay. boats of some sort. And um, it looked like there was maybe a little more thrill to it. Uh, you know, there's been so many versions, there's been iterations of that, you know, you yeah. know, through the decade. Yeah. So what iteration mm -hmm. of it I saw, I don't know. And Universal uh, Studios just released that like last year, <laughs> about 35 <laughs> years later. Not bad. Just joking, Universal. We love you. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else was in there? Um, we walked, you know, through that, the Gold Coast, they called it the main part of uh, WED. And I, I mean, I remember seeing the name tags on the doors and <laughs> yeah. I certainly, you know, Claude Coates and Mark Davis and, uh, you know, all of these uh, are, rock star names. Are yeah. those names, let me ask you that question. Are those names known to you at that time? Um, yes. Or is this, okay, Mark it is. Davis. Yeah. Those names are, maybe yeah. not other names, but um, uh, certainly Marty Sklar, John Hench, Mark Davis, Claude Coates, Exitensio. Yeah. Yeah. And, and are you aware of, are you aware of those legends because of working in the park, your own research, your dad talking to you about it? Like, be, because I, you know, these, yeah. these legends have taken on, you know, a, a mythic reputation within the Disney fan community. <laughs> and a lot of it is perpetuated right. by the internet and that sort of thing. But at this time, you know, I, again, this is before Imagineering really becomes in vogue for fandom. So like, how, how are you aware yeah. of these, these individuals? Well, there's, there were enough uh, magazine articles, news articles, and internal um, articles within, you know, as cast members. Okay. Uh, there was enough of that that you certainly would know. Um, there was a there was a cl animation club at Disneyland for the cast members um, that wasn't really focused too much on wed, but people like Exitensia would come and talk, and oh, wow. naturally okay. the conversation would move over to to wed um willie reitherman i remember um you know and eric larson and ward kimball 
Um, they were all people who would come and talk at, in the Lincoln Theater, okay. and they'd show Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, whatever. And so you knew it from things like that, and um, and like I said, from the internal um, communications, you know, magazines yeah. and things like that. Yeah. At an early earlyish age, I probably knew who Mark Davis and Claude Coates. I. I may have known them more from seeing their credits in the animated films. Sure. Yep. I, I remember uh, Mary Blair um, made an impression, not that I necessarily knew who she was, but um, you know, it's like, I really like the color in that film yeah. and it's, it's color by Mary Blair. <laughs> so, Oh, I, I did know who Ivan Earl was because I had that art of animation book, you know, and that book was oh, right. That makes sense. Right. And so, very early, I knew who Ivan Earl was, um, um, and I knew Tony, oh, I knew of Tony Baxter, and and then as an attractions host, I met Tony, and um, you met him as an attractions host. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I knew him then, and probably like in my junior year, I think in high school. So um, Tony, Tony Baxter, him. by the way, living patron saint of the show, as we refer to him. Okay, so I take that tour and I'm like, that seems like a pretty cool place to work. Yeah, so are you are you uh impressed at that point to to think like, yeah, that I could do this. That's something that's a that's a trajectory for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I hadn't been honing my art skills too much. I was always good at sketching and I always had a good sense of um perspective. So if I did a drawing, the perspective was correct yeah. on it. Um but I didn't know that, you know, art wasn't necessarily something that I was going to go into. And I was really good in English. I mean, that's like I said, that's where I could get my A's. Even in the art class, you know, I if there was an assignment I didn't want to do, I wouldn't do it. And I would spend more time on doing the thing that I wanted to do and therefore get a B instead of an A. And um, so it, it seemed like communications and film um, were the respectable things that I could get into, um, in college or architecture. I took three years of drafting and I was really good at in drafting. high school, so after the, in high school. Oh, wow. We had three years. Yeah. We had a, a really good drafting, um, course there. And so as I'm taking that class, I'm thinking maybe an architect, you know, um, I'm really good at this and I have a really good sense of spatial management, and, um, and I can see things in 3D. So I do the three years of the drafting and, you know, I have a, a pretty impressive drafting portfolio. I mean, certainly enough to get a job just being a, a basic draftsman somewhere. Yeah. So that's just sitting in my portfolio. And then I go into college and I focus on film and communications, um, advertising, marketing, packaging, um, I remember reading the book called The uh, Hidden Persuaders, which made a, a big influence on me, which is all about the things that I was talking about with the balloons. Yeah, yeah. About what makes people want to or not want to reach out and grab a product and put it in their basket. Um, and what had happened was around 1977, I will say, about when I, you know, I guess the year I became an attractions host, was about the year that Disney realized, oh, our animation, um, you know, workforce is all retiring. 
And we're getting ready to build a project over at WED called Epcot. And now there's a second project that they have to build because someone opened their big mouth called Tokyo Disneyland. And so all of a sudden they need people like crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so they had, um, they, they, and I guess even before that, they had started a career planning and placement program for the cast members, which was an analog um, system where you would submit your resume, you know, and if it was appropriate, a portfolio, if you wanted to go into animation, if you wanted to be an accountant or an estimator. What an amazing opportunity for a young person. All of these... um, opportunities that were on the horizon at Disney, you know, the, the big things are happening, um, you know, coming into the middle of the seventies, they hadn't done, you know, signed the deal yet for Epcot or Tokyo yet, but all of these things were kind of mobilizing. And so they started wisely, they started this program. And so I'm like, what the heck? I'm a, I'm pretty sure it was like my senior year in high school. Cause the only thing that was in the portfolio was an application. There was no resume cause I hadn't done anything. Yeah. And, um, so it was a portfolio basically of my drafting and some writing and whatever illustrations I had done in my art class. And your references from your paper route. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and I'm like, well, this can't hurt. Um, I remember taking pictures, you know, I had to take photos of everything because I wasn't going to give the original, you know, artifact away. So I, you know, had to spend money to take pictures of this stuff and, um, or make blueprints of the drafting thing of the drafting, uh, that I had done. And so I submitted that not thinking that it would be anything needed or useful until I got out of college. But the next year they, called me and they said, we need, would you be interested in, you know, working the summer at Imagineering or working for a semester? Cause we yeah. know you're going to school. And I was only in my second year of, of um, Cal state Fullerton. Would you be interested? And, uh, uh, let me think about it. Can yeah. I get back to you next week? Yeah. <laughs> and to me, this was more cockamamie than the trip to Walt Disney world. Cause you know, I'm going to quit, you know, First of all, I was making a lot of money as a ride operator because yeah. <laughs> um, the Teamsters were the union at the time. So I'm making good money as a ride operator. And now my social life is a lot better, too, um, as a ride operator. <laughs> and um, and I, okay, I have to quit school, so I'm going to be a dropout. And maybe I'm not good at draft. You know, I mean, I think I'm good at drafting. They think that my drafting is really nice, but what's it going to lead to? You know, is that what I'm going to do for the rest of my life is be a drafts person? So I think, you know, so you, you were, wow, it's right? interesting, Tom. You, so you were really heavily considering whether or not you should or should not take this, this position. Yeah. Oh, Cause yeah. for me, it's like a foregone conclusion. Like, do you want to come work at WED? Yes. Yeah. I, I'll be there tomorrow. You know, yeah. it's interesting. It's like you, if I had, if I had had one more year or two, you know, of school, of, of college, I, it would have been a foregone conclusion, but I'm like, I've, I'm only into, you know, a year and a half of college and, and I'm liking my film class and I'm really good at the communications stuff. And they're not asking me to go into a communications role or they're not asking right. me to right. go to an art, you know, to be an illustrator or anything. Um, 
they want me to be a, it's a, an apprentice draftsman, you know, it's a grunt job to start with. I think I talked with Tony Baxter about it and he said, well, you know, how, how, how many other opportunities are you going to get when, when this company finishes building Epcot, that might be the last thing that the company ever does. He was trying to convince me to take the job. He may have been behind the scenes, you know, finagling it. I don't know. Um, how, how, what was your, he said, well, he said one time that he goes, cause I hired you. And I go, no, you didn't hire me. George Windrum hired me cause they needed drafts people. And then once I was there, then you, you took me onto your team for journey into imagination. Right. How uh, and, did you have a relationship yeah. with Tony before you went to wed? Yes. Oh, and how was that? And how did yes. you know each other? Yeah. We had a mutual friend. I see. Okay. There was a mutual friend and the mutual friend introduced us. And, um, and he had this fantastic and still does always have a, he always has a state of the art, um, video, uh, movie setup. Oh, I've seen pictures and of so, that before <laughs> his yeah, theater, his yeah, home so theater. He, he had that, you know, when he was, however old he was at the time in his late twenties and he was still living with his parents in Tustin, which was not far from where I lived. And again, I'm like, you know, how come you don't live in Beverly Hills or Brentwood? <laughs> And this he's like, what I think. he's like, what, t- t- 10, 12 years older than you? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. His birthday was two days ago and mine's tomorrow. Hey, happy, happy birthday. birthday. Thank you. So I had gone over there with my friend a few times and watched movies and he took me through his portfolio, which totally um, just like blew me away. And I'm like, okay, I can't do this. You know, I mean that I can build models probably. I don't know if I can illustrate like this because he showed me that fantasy land illustration yeah. that he did and i'm like oh my god and so from time to time i touch bases with him and now that i'm an attractions host i don't know somehow i'm more, more um have more access to him or something um or maybe i just see him more in the park because he's going on rides sure not buying balloons <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so I just asked him, I said, what do you think? Should I take this job? You know, they want me to work in either architectural drafting or set design. And he said, you know, what I just told you a few minutes ago is that he said, you know, well, in three years, you may get out of college and there won't be any, that'll be about the time we're laying everyone off from right. Epcot. Right. And so this is your shot. Other projects. Yeah. So I ambivalently accepted the job. I went up and I interviewed with George Windrum, who was in charge of the show set department. Uh, he said that he had seen my portfolio and um, definitely need some, needed people with my skill and that I could start at the first of the year. And um, so I did. <laughs> I can't believe it. You know, it's like you look back at these things and you go, what, you know, Um, but it was, it was all good. Um, You know, of course you start off doing kind of grunt work, um, which is good. I think it's good that everyone start off doing grunt work because it's just, it's just something that it's a good discipline. Well, and you've got the experience Uh, in the park too, that adds a whole nother facet to it. Well, that turns out to be like a really, you know, uh, big benefit as a ride operator. It was another thing that I would analyze. Yeah. You know, I was always analyzing dispatch intervals. And is there a way that, you know, I wonder why the interval can't be any shorter 
than it is. And then eventually after kind of analyzing everything, you understand what the, what the limiting factor on the attraction is. Well, I find, I find it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, no, (laughs) I, I, I find it fascinating, you know, as we're talking all these little, these little things that add up into, uh, you know, huge influences for how you think and how you'll end up designing in, in your career. And, you know, it just it just goes to show you that every experience that we have in life builds towards something, whether we're recognizing it at the time or not well, until yeah. later. Well, I never liked to waste time. Um, so, you know, when I was bored selling balloons, which would be most of the time, because most of the people do buy the balloons on their way out, not on their way in. So you'd be standing there selling 10 balloons an hour in the middle of the day. And you had to be, you know, you had to be thinking about thinking something. about something, right? Yeah. So you know, I'd watch the um, the horse-drawn streetcars, or I would. There was a position up near the Matterhorn on Alpine Road, whatever it's called, and I remember noting the dispatch interval. I didn't know what the term was, but you know, I noticed that a, a bobsled goes by every seventeen seconds, and. Uh, sometimes it's like 16 seconds, but when it's 16 seconds, the next one will be 18 seconds, you know? And um, so that really came in handy when uh, I hit the ground running, when I started in show set, because I knew this stuff. And when Tony, they started up the journey into imagination pavilion for Epcot center, um, Tony was put in charge and he selected me to be on the team and, you know, my job was to be a draftsman and to help lay out um, this pavilion yeah. and this ride that would go within the pavilion. And all of those, and I had never designed a ride layout before. You know, I knew what the ride layouts for Haunted Mansion and Pirates and Small World were, um, but I had never designed one before. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, and, I, and I, I can't yeah. wait to get into talking about yeah. uh, Journey into Imagination. I mean, there's there's so much there to explore in addition to just the rest, you know, the other yeah. big hits of your career. I think it's a, a, a perfect time to, to, to stop right now. And, uh, and yeah. I, I hope you'll join us for chapter again, two, chapter two of the Tom Morris story. Oh, we would love it. Happy too. Yeah. Well, it's what are you doing one. to celebrate tomorrow? Working on my book. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's yeah. We have to get into, you have two of them and we'll, we'll talk about that too coming up. Uh, are you, is that the Imagineering one that you're, that you're working on right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's the early days of Imagineering. Oh, awesome. And it turned out to be a, an incredible rabbit hole, Yeah, you know, uh, uh, good news and bad news. You know, it's like, it's taking much longer than I thought, but there's much more information that I, uh, um, than I ever imagined there would be, and I'm getting it, you know? Um, and the good news is that I think after this, um, these two volumes come out. Um, I'm not doing any more on Imagineering. I'm taking it up to 71. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that right? And someone else can handle yeah. all the other decades. Um, um, but if I do a book on the archaeology of Disneyland, I think it'll take a lot less time because <laughs> I have most of the material. <laughs> right. and I won't have to try to track down, you know, individuals, um, who, you know, who may or may not remember. We can't wait to talk to you more about your book, man. What a great time for that to come out. The internet and, and the Disney fan community at whole is going to go crazy. Yeah. So I hope you're ready for that. I, I mean, I always have my, um, you know, 
like check myself like okay it's a it's this book just for me and five nope. other people? No, it's it's definitely not. I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's like we talked about. There's just such a, there is such a fandom for Imagineering. For so long, Imagineering was like this black box, yeah. right? I mean, I talk about growing, I talk about growing up. I grew up in Detroit and I talk about how if I somehow knew that becoming an Imagineer was something that you could do, I absolutely would have done it. But I found out about it too late. Even though I experienced Disneyland and Disney World, it never clued into me like, oh, this is something yeah. that people actually do for yeah. a living. This is what they do. Yeah. And, uh, and and so, and a lot of that is because, again, Imagineering was such a, not only regionally was I separated from Imagineering, but also just, it was a very close-knit community. You yeah. didn't talk about it. It was the secret thing, right? It was how the magic makers. Now that the right. fan community has, has, now that Disney has opened up Imagineering more, for people, Imagineering story, the Disney publishing, D23 publishing, that type of thing. Like there is that, I think there is a hunger for Super. people know Bob and people know Rolly and people know Mark and Blaine and that sort of thing. But it's these, it's the people that either worked underneath them or made contributions that you're not familiar with that I think people would love to know about. Plus what they, what they did before and what they did after. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right some amazing stories after stories yeah and 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 prelude stories yeah yeah it, i think it's kind of a once in a lifetime thing because you know it's it, i realized i couldn't have done it with a full-time job yeah or even a part-time job um and now i'm into my i've just entered the second year of this particular book yeah because it started off being the archaeology of disneyland yeah. and then it took a left turn when I started finding all these names yeah. and meeting people who were giving me names and meeting these people and they were giving me other names and they were all matching up with stuff I was researching and matching up the photos and yeah. like, Oh my God. It's like, no, but I just didn't know that there were going to be as many people yeah. <laughs> when I, when I raised my hand and said, you know, <laughs> well, what if this was, and, uh, but it, it, I think it's an important thing to do because even if I don't get all the information, it's a starting point for other people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Get their own, you know, kind of in investigations is the wrong word, but, you know, um, research, yeah. you know, yeah. um, treasure, treasure hunts. Yeah. Oh yeah. The connection thing is crazy throughout yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Or, or personally, you know, there's some connections back to my dad. Oh yeah, that's awesome! So cool. <laughs> if we keep talking to you, you're gonna you're gonna turn 46 on this podcast, and we don't want to we don't want to keep you. I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Tom, we won't take up any more of your time, but like I said, thank you so much for the time that you gave us, and uh, and I'll check in with you about yeah. when you want to schedule the next one. Uh, I uh, really, really, really appreciate. Yeah, appreciate and from the all the Bantha tears, happy birthday! I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for working on this so much have a great night we'll talk soon okay so much fun tom morris my friend oh are we still recording yeah we're recording oh man that was so fun that was just just exciting. It was so exciting. I just uh, again, I his could, childhood's plenty. That's plenty for a book. A book. He should just have a podcast on growing up, growing up Morris, growing up Tom Morris. Yep. 
Uh, it's it's definitely a Disney Plus series that needs yeah. to be made. It really is fascinating. It's like a modern day Huck Finn or or uh, Tom well, Sawyer. Yeah, well, of course, you and I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But if you could drop a pin somewhere to grow up. Oh my gosh. Like you always think as a kid, like if I had a time machine, what do I do? Well, you go back and live in Tom Morris' house, get that yeah, paper you, out. <laughs> exactly. You get that paper out. You live uh, in Newport Beach. Yeah. Uh, just again, regionally blessed. I can't yeah. I can't explain it any other what way. What a what a what a delightful imaginary with a diverse set of observations that have all led to some amazing things in all all sorts of different categories. And we only got to the beginning of his career at West. I'm so glad we're doing multiple chapters. I uh, could not be more excited. And I'm glad we're getting into like the details of yeah. it. I love that stuff. So yeah. yay, fun. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Bob Says and Banthas. Uh, we love making this show, and we hope you have enjoyed listening to it. Uh, please make sure to connect with us on Instagram at Bob Says and Banthas. You can email us, podcast at bobsaysandbanthas.com if you want to. If you have a question, if, if something you want to follow up on something you heard from Tom that you want us to ask, we would love to ask on your behalf. Uh, you can join us on Twitter. We're at Bob Says Banthas. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think there's anything else in the Just start saving up that paper route money because uh, Tom Morris got some books coming out and you're going to buy a bunch of copies because everybody's going to watch Thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week. Now there are more new rides for more fun. In electro-synthomagnetic musical sound. Through the magic of light and sound. Yes, there's more fun at Disneyland in Anaheim. Open every day, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done.